Okay, open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Psalms, right there in the middle of your Bibles. Today we begin a new series in the book of Psalms, and we're calling it Pour Out Your Heart to God. We take that title from Psalm 62.8. It's been on the center screen this morning, right behind me. Psalm 62.8 says, Trust Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. He's a refuge for us. So in this series in the book of Psalms, we won't cover every psalm in the weeks to come. We'll cover many of them, maybe a third of them, and we'll certainly cover every kind of them, even the hard ones. But today I want to begin a series not so much by focusing on any one psalm like we will do from here on out, uh, probably one psalm per week, but... But today I want to introduce or reintroduce to you this wonderful book. You could call it an invitation to the Psalms or a reinvitation to the Psalms because it might be your favorite book already. And it might be like it is for me, for you, that there was, you know, times in the past, yesteryear, you used this book or God used this book in a special way in your life for a time of well, revival, of awakening, of, of spiritual refreshment. Uh, maybe you still go to it as frequently as you ever have. Or maybe you've never spent much time in the Psalms at all. Maybe you're a history guy or you're a story gal. And so you'd rather read the Gospels than Paul's letters, just the way you, you prefer, right? It's what you like. You'd rather read Old Testament stories than Old Testament poetry, perhaps. And I suspect some here are not Christians at all. Maybe you've never opened this book we call the Bible. Maybe you've never seen this book called Psalms. you thought it said. Um, you just thought it was very convenient that for once you opened the Bible and it kind of fell open to that, that book that someone was talking about as opposed to Hezekiah that you couldn't find uh, the last time you were at church. So regardless of who you are, regardless of where you are in your spiritual life, no matter how familiar you are with God's word in general or the Psalms specifically, I hope to grab your attention this morning. I hope to remind you or show you uh, the wonder and specialness, if we dare say, about this book. I have a special love for this book and a long history with this book. Uh, I, I pastored a small church um, before coming to Desert Springs. And I'm convinced pastoral ministry is hard no matter where you are. Even good churches are hard, right? It's, it's hard work. It should be. It's just the way it goes. But some are harder than others. Some have less fruit than others. Some have more complaints than others. Some seem much more uphill than others. And boy, I, I didn't have much encouraging in some years of pastoral ministry before I came to Desert Springs Church. And the Psalms was my, my heartbeat. It was my, it was my, it was my pacemaker, right? It was life-giving to me. If you, if you had said to me in those days, give me your Bible, in fact, all of them, and we're going to take the Psalms out, I think I would have shriveled up. I mean, God used it in a special way. And so I hope... Uh, in these weeks to come, that we together as a church um, love God's word like this, the Psalms and the rest of it, 
Uh, we've got some detailed notes that we'll put on the church blog this morning. You see in the back of your sermon notes page, we've got six questions that we want to ask the whole book of Psalms. And then some of those answers will be rather detailed. So you might be tempted to try to keep track and write down, even if you don't have the room, uh, some of the things I'm going to say this morning. Just, just know, be at rest. We'll put those points and subpoints in a tidy document on the church blog for you um, in a couple of days. So you don't need to try to write everything down. As I said, I want to ask us six questions of the whole book of Psalms today. And some answers will be shorter, some longer, some will be really simple, 101 type stuff, and some more technical, and then we'll end with the most practical, how we use the Psalms. First question, where are the Psalms and why? And this is an easy one. If you found it already, you know where they are. But I I mean this a little bit more technically than that. Would you just turn to the table of contents in your Bible? Toward the beginning, look at the books of the Bible listed there. It'll give you page numbers on where each one is. It'll give you the list of Old Testament and New Testament books. You might not know this, but these 39 books of the Old Testament are placed neatly into categories of, well, genre. Kinds of literature, like last week, Trent was preaching from Revelation, and he said that's a special kind of literature. Well, there are basically, roughly, three kinds of literature in the Old Testament. So if you look down your table of contents, you'll see from Genesis to Esther, those are there basically, roughly, in chronological order as history books. That's history. That's a history section of your Old Testament. Then if you look down and you see Job to Song of Solomon, these are what we call wisdom literature. Okay, They're there together like they are because they're a certain kind of literature. They're poetry or proverb or, or love poems uh, like Song of Solomon. And then the last third of the Old Testament, we call this prophets, Isaiah to Malachi. So if you ever open a Bible and you just think, boy, it's, who put this together? It's kind of chaotic. It just seems like a bunch of collections of sayings. And no, there's actually some real thought that goes into where these books of the Bible go in the Bible. And it tells us that a book like Psalms isn't meant to be history. It's meant to be understood as something that happened, or these Psalms happened rather, sort of scattered throughout the history. So again, if you're looking at your table of contents, what you'll see what I'm saying is Psalms were written at various points in those earlier history books. One psalm is written by Moses, Psalm 90. Moses, he's at the beginning of the story, right? Almost half are written by David, someone sort of in the middle of the Old Testament. And then several psalms are written during and after what we call the Babylonian exile. Now, if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But it's later in the Old Testament story where God judged his people by taking them out of their promised land and putting them in captivity in Babylon. Some of those psalms are at the end of the book of Psalms. So many psalms really are scattered throughout a thousand years here. Basically a thousand years from the earliest psalm to the oldest psalm. And many of the psalms tell us the author right at the beginning the context, the reason for writing. So thumb back to the Psalms and you'll just probably land on one. As your eyes glance the beginning of a psalm, you'll see something often in sort of what we call small caps at the beginning, before you get to verse 1. 
So it'll say, a psalm of David. Or sometimes it even describes what's going on when he wrote it. A psalm of David when he was on the run from Saul. Right? So sometimes it's helpful to see that and go, wait, where is that? Okay, go read the story. Go read the story of David in the cave there, that specific time and place. That's the first question. Where are the Psalms? Well, they're right in the middle and not an accident. Uh, They're there in the middle because they're wisdom literature and they're scattered throughout the story of the Old Testament. The other questions get more interesting. Second question is this, what are the Psalms? Well, here's my definition. Again, you don't need to write it down. We'll have this on the church blog for you if you want to have it. The Psalms are songs or poems about the history, theology, and experience of God's people in communion with God and in worship of his rule and his redemption. I'll say it again. The Psalms are songs or poems about the history, theology, and experience of communion with the covenant God who reigns and redeems. Here's the third question. What's unique about the Psalms? And really the rest of the message in various ways will answer what that second question was. What are the Psalms? Well, one answer to that would be, well, they're unique. There's some things that are unique about them. I want to give you 10 things that are unique about the Psalms. And we'll spend a good bit of time on this because I think it's important. I want you to see that the Psalms, in a sense, are not just one of the 66 books. But there's a special place in God's plan for these things we call Psalms. 10 reasons why Psalms are unique. First, it's a book that's uniquely about worship. It is uniquely about worship. And I don't just mean singing, though that's certainly part of worship. And I don't just mean corporate worship, like what we're doing here this morning. We all came together. Though that's important, and that's in the Psalms. But I mean worship in general, in all of its kinds. Corporate worship, and private worship, and family worship whether it's singing or whether it's reading, whether it's praying or whether it's serving, worship in all of its forms. It's a book uniquely about worship, how God's people respond to their covenant-making, redeeming, and ruling king. Worship is the most important thing in the world. And the most thorough description of worship that we have in our Bibles, except maybe from those powerful descriptions of worship in Revelation, in the new heaven, the new earth, we see here in Psalms so many examples of worship, so many descriptions of what our worship should be. One Psalm scholar suggested that as we read the Psalms, we are entering into the sanctuary the place where God meets men and women in a special way. It's a conversation between God and his people, which is direct and intense and intimate and above all, honest. 
There is no place in the Bible that talks about God and his people in such direct, intense, intimate, and honest ways. Secondly, it's a book that's uniquely about songs and singing. Certainly under worship, one part of worship is singing. Singing is all through the Psalms. And so some say that this is God's God-given hymn book, right? It's our God-given hymn book. And we're told in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that we should be singing psalms. That has to be one of the most neglected commands the church has. We're growing in a church, growing as a church in this regard. I'll tell you more about that in a bit, but it's certainly one of the most neglected commands that we sing psalms, not song-like songs, but sing psalms. Why? Why would we sing psalms? Well, we don't have to wonder about the content when we sing what he's given to us in his word, when we have divinely inspired, divinely spoken through his servants, songs. Psalms are God-given songs, but they're not just songs. They describe song. They describe worship. They tell us how to do it. Not too many songs we sing today tell us how to sing, tell us how to worship. They tell us and tell God how we worship him or why we worship him. But the Psalms are unique in that they actually describe singing. They describe what our worship should be like. They prescribe for us. They tell us what to do and they tell us why to do it. The Psalms tell us to Sing thoughtfully and passionately and energetically and skillfully. And because we sing a lot as a church, right? I would say in general, the church in America, the church in the Western world sings a lot. It's, it, it's one third or more of our Sunday morning worship service. You sing a lot probably at home or in your car. You listen to certain songs and you sing along with them in praise to God. We sing a lot, but I'm certain we don't think nearly enough about what we're doing, what's going on. The Psalms help us to do that. They're not just songs for us to use. They don't just describe sort of what we should do, but they're also examples. These songs are examples for all of our future songwriting, right? We should learn from what's going on in the Psalms as we write songs or we choose songs as a church to sing. There are certain aspects that that we should follow, certain things in the Psalms that we should learn and apply to our singing as a church. A third thing that's unique about Psalms is that it's a book that's uniquely of prayers. It's a book of prayers. No book of the Bible is more about worship. No book of the Bible is more about singing. And no book of the Bible is more about prayer. You know one good word to summarize those three things? Worship, uh, singing, and prayer? It's communion. Relating to him. Being in union 
with him. There's no book of the Bible that is more about communion with God, relating to him. And one of the ways we relate to him, one of the big ways we relate to him is through prayers. And in the Psalms, we have a God-given model for prayers. But we have Paul's prayers that do that, right? Remember those in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1? They're often at the beginning or end of Paul's letters. He tells us how he's been praying, what things he's been praying for, for a church. It's a great model. We need to give heed to that model. We have the model of the Lord Jesus when the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he told them, you know that prayer. We have hundreds in the Psalms. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it then the prayer book of the Bible. Fourth, it's unique because it's a book of experience. It's uniquely a book of experience. It covers the full range of emotions. It it has brutal honesty in it. No book of the Bible is this honest, repeatedly so, with the struggles. And this is so important, so needed today, because on the one hand, so many are proud. So many, I'm, I'm one, guarded with sin, so external in our righteousness. And yet on the other hand, some flaunt their spiritual weaknesses like that's the true badge of spirituality. Some are too contented to stay messed up and sad. And the Psalms are a great example here because they're brutally honest on the one hand about doubt and hurt and brokenness and and sin. But did you know only one Psalm out of 150 ends that way? In all the others where there's sadness and brokenness and doubt and worry and, and fear... There's a corner that's turned somewhere in the Psalms. There's light at the end of the tunnel of that psalm. All except just one. We'll get to that eventually. Or we could put it this way. Many times in the Psalms, the psalm writer questions something about God. Questions something about his plan. That's good. That's a lesson for us. He already knows when you doubt. He already knows when you fear. He already knows when... You're growing restless about something he's doing. You might as well talk to him about it. And yet, these examples of questioning something about God's plan, it's so important to see how that questioning is guarded. How how far it won't go, right? How far it could go but doesn't. How many things it still clings to and won't entertain. We'll get to those. In a sense, no book of the Bible is is as hopeful, though, is as expectant, is as lofty. No other book of the Bible describes normal praise and worship in such glorious, lofty, loud, exultant terms. Martin Luther, that great reformer, said, in the Psalms, we look into the heart of all the saints. 
and we gaze into fair pleasure gardens. We gaze into heaven itself where sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all his benefits abound. That's the Psalms. No book of the Bible is as hopeful and as, as expectant and as lofty except perhaps Revelation as it describes the end of times, the consummation of all things. And no book of the Bible except maybe Job talks about suffering as much as the Psalms do. And even with the book of Job, we've got to remember so many of those chapters are the speeches of Job's idiot friends who don't really have a good theology of suffering. They don't really understand God's use of suffering in the lives of his people. They don't have a category for what we would call innocent suffering or undeserved suffering. So, so much of the book of Job doesn't really give us verse after verse of helpful instruction on suffering. Job's help for our suffering is in the big picture. But in the Psalms, you can't go three verses without help for your suffering in some way, shape, or form. The Psalms are uniquely helpful for sufferers. Fifth, it's a, uniquely, it's a book uniquely about God and us. Both God and us. Because the Psalms are so experiential, because they're so honest, they tell us about ourselves. They show us ourselves. Sometimes in a way that's better than what we know of ourselves. John Calvin said of the Psalms, What various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury. It would be it would not be inappropriate to call this book in an anatomy of the soul. For there is not an emotion, there is not anything represented to us in this book that is not as a mirror. The Psalms function like a mirror. They show us ourselves. And the Psalms are also loaded with descriptions about God and his ways, and his plans. It's not just examples of praying and singing and worshiping or complaining to God. The Psalms are loaded with descriptions about God, who he is, what his character's like, what he's promised in the past, what he's done in the past. What are his attributes? The Psalms have an unusually heavy amount of information about the creator. John Calvin began, began his famous theology text, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, like this. Nearly all wisdom that is true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. If he's right, if true wisdom, and I don't think he means practical wisdom like two plus two equals four, I think he means spiritual wisdom. If all true spiritual wisdom really boils down to knowing ourselves and knowing our God through his word, then the Psalms make up a section of his word which uniquely give us both of those, who he is and who we are in light of it. Sixth, the Psalms are a book which uniquely mingles doctrine and delight. 
It shows us right thinking and right feeling, but not separately. Like, oh, here's a good psalm about his attributes, who he is, theology. But look over there. There's a real good psalm that's so emotional. Get out your Kleenex. This is going to be good on a poster with a basket of puppies or something. No. Doctrine and delight. Head and heart, thinking and feeling, mingled throughout, intermeshed in the Psalms. We tend to be either or kind of people. Either you're the kind that, boy, you'd rather have your fingernails pulled out with pliers than read a a theology textbook. And then there are others who'd rather drink gasoline than start journaling. I'm the latter. Funny story, you want to hear it? I didn't hear it, yes, but I'll go ahead and tell you anyway. Uh, I decided I was going to journal once. It was the first couple years of marriage, and so I thought, if I'm going to journal, I'd never journaled before. I thought, if I'm going to journal, I better get like a really nice one. You know, kind of like the fancy gym membership. You think if you spend a lot, you'll use it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I thought, I'll get this fancy leather journal and, uh, and I, I thought I would write down what I was doing, sort of keep a, a record of my life and, you know, events, remember things, that sort of thing, and f- feelings too, right, spiritual insights, all that. But we found it years later, and all it said was, had lunch with Wayne Latham. <laughs> An old friend. And then it had, you know, a hundred blank pages after that. Nothing. Okay, so... So I tend to be more a theology guy than a journaling guy. But we need, we need to feed that weaker side a little bit more in Psalms. Psalms are good to help us do that. They mingle doctrine and delight. Seventh, it's a book for all occasions. There is a psalm for any occasion. Did you know that Psalm 104 reads like a creation video? It talks about earthquakes and volcanoes and tornadoes and the dwelling places of storks and badgers and mountain goats. That's in the Psalms. Did you know that Psalm 107 is a pilgrim's psalm? So William Bradford read it shortly after the Mayflower arrived in the New World. Read it and you'll see why. Did you know that Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119, conveniently numbered for our memory, make up a majority part of what the Bible says about itself? How do we know what the Bible is? The Bible tells us what the Bible is. Where? Well, it's scattered all throughout. And then there are three psalms that are devoted to what the Bible is and how we should use it. There's more about the nature of God's word in those three psalms than anywhere else in the Bible put together. Did you know that some of the best missionary passages in the whole Bible are in the psalms? Psalm 67, 96 are two examples. Did you know that Psalm 139 is some of the best scripture in all the Bible about the personhood of the unborn? Did you know that Psalm 4 tells us to, listen to this, to lie down, think on the Lord in your bed, be still, and go to sleep? 
which is perfect for tucking kids into bed. So I read it for our, to our kids every night, probably for two years. Those years that are, stay in your bed or I'll kill you years. Don't, did you go pee? Did you get a drink? Is there anything else I can get you? Let's get this out of the way now because you're not getting up later. Those years, I said all that, but I also read Psalm 4. And just as Psalm 4 is what we might call an evening psalm, Psalm 5 is a morning psalm. So is Psalm 90. The Psalms are uniquely helpful for family devotions. You could never say, I don't know where to go. It's a big book. A Psalm is always a good place to go. A Psalm is good prep for Sunday morning. Do you know that there are Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent? I think it's 121 to 130. And these are Psalms about walking to worship. Use them. Sunday morning, before you come. The convenience of the Psalms is that in some ways, each one is self-contained. So you don't ever pick up in the middle of a story in the Psalms, like you might in John 9 or something. When you finish one Psalm, you don't feel bad about not reading the next Psalm necessarily. It's okay to use the Psalms as floater reading, if you like. Now that shouldn't be the sum total of your Bible intake, but when you've been away from the Bible for too long and you don't know where to turn, turn to the Psalms. When you've been in the Word daily and you need a bonus word before a meal or in a hospital room, Psalms. Eighth, it's uniquely personal and corporate. It's a book that's uniquely Corporate and personal. It's about God's people together and it's about individuals alone. That's special. Some places talk about God's people together and then these other passages, maybe it's rare though, that talk about us alone with God and our Bibles on our knees. Do you realize how that's in some ways this idea of devotions or quiet times is in some ways dependent on what kind of culture you live in. So, so the idea that you could get alone with God is okay for us, it's fine for us where we have our own bedrooms. And in many cultures, it's one room house, right? In many cultures, uh, they couldn't read. In many cultures, they didn't have their own Bibles. And so, so, so we're individualistic a lot of times in our, our approach to Christian life, and we say that a lot around here. Have you heard that before? DSC pastors say, we are individualistic in our culture, and we need to react against that, and we need to be more corporate. Well, here, you're going to hear something just slightly different this morning, that the, the Psalms are uniquely personal and private. There are so many that are basically a guy alone with his God and his word and in prayer and worship. We need both. It's a book that's uniquely, ninth, it's a book uniquely about Christ. Many of the Psalms speak of the Messiah. Clear proof is that, get this, the New Testament quotes the book of Psalms more than any other part of the Old Testament. 
So when the New Testament writers wanted to go find proof that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is really the one, the promised one, more often than not, they went to the Psalms to find a quote. Tenth, it's uniquely a whole Bible book. It talks about creation and sin and redemption and restoration and the end of all things, the judgment to come. So Martin Luther called the book of Psalms the Bible in miniature. In short, Psalms are unique. So our friend Sam Storms says that the Psalms are in some ways in the Bible a first among equals. All the books of the Bible are equal. They're all God's word. But he goes so far as to say, the Psalms are a kind of first among the equals in the canon of scripture. All right, on to the fourth question, and these will go more quickly. The fourth question is this, what themes are in the Psalms? Well, all kinds of repeated themes, and we've really covered a lot of them already. Hopefully you already know many of the the themes of the book of Psalms from your own reading in the past. But let me just run through a list so that we see the breadth that's covered in the book of Psalms. The themes of doubt, fear, desertion, enemies, threat, help, protection, joy, Worship, worship described, worship instructed, unity, hope of global praise. Like I said, there's so much missionary motivation in the Psalms. There's a defense of God in the Psalms. In the face of unbelief, God's character, historical records, sort of a quick summary of Old Testament stories. Repentance, grace, mercy, God's word, like I said, the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, the list could just keep going. And we could talk about how many kinds of psalms there are. It's not the same thing as how many themes. There are maybe a hundred themes, but scholars who study this, they don't all agree, but they say, you know, there are different kinds of psalms. Some suggest there are four kinds. Some suggest that there are 12. Let me, again, just list the different kinds of psalms. I'll give a list of 10 so that you have these in mind as you think through and read through the psalms. You you should ask yourself, okay, what kind of psalm is this? Is it a psalm of praise like Psalm 33 is? Is it a psalm of thanksgiving like Psalm 136 is? Is it a psalm of distress and deliverance like Psalm 61 is? Is it a psalm of repentance, like Psalm 38? Is it a psalm of complaint to God, or what we sometimes call lament? Is it a sad psalm, like Psalm 13 is? Is it a psalm of confidence, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? Or Psalm 27, the Lord is my light? My salvation? Is it a psalm of judgment like Psalm 69? Is it a psalm of historical remembrance like Psalm 78, which, like I said, gives a summary of the whole Old Testament in, I don't know, 
few dozen verses. It's a psalm of instruction. Like Psalm 1, it tells us what to do. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That one will be like a tree planted by rivers of waters. Or is it a psalm about a king, what we call royal psalms, like Psalm 2 is? By the way, this is a good time to mention what a great help a good study Bible can be. Raise your hand if you own a study Bible. Let me just see. Most of you do. If you don't know what a study Bible is, it helps you out. It helps you study the Bible. It's the Bible plus some added words, which could be dangerous if they weren't drawn from God's word. If they weren't taught by God's word to summarize God's word for us. And so they, they put notes at the bottom to tell what this confusing verse means or, or they put a, a section at the beginning of a book to get you prepared for a book of the Bible. And I looked at the ESV study Bible, which is one we sell out there at the Resource Center, probably the best one. Um, the ESV study Bible has a, a wonderful nine-page introduction to the book of Psalms, um, which... Boy, I mean, it, would, it would be a replacement for this message. And I know what you're thinking. Boy, that would have taken a lot less time, too. Um, anyway, it's a good intro. The fifth question is, what is the layout or the structure of the Psalms? The layout or the structure? Well, this might not seem important to you, but it's a very practical question. It's where do I go for help? And in some ways... That's where a good study Bible can help you. It can list the different kinds of psalms. And, and boy, you're in a Thanksgiving mood. You know, you're preparing to say something at Thanksgiving dinner in front of the family. A good study Bible will tell you which psalms might be helpful. But another way to be aware of where things might be in the Bibles to, in the psalms is to note that each, um, that there are five books within the psalms, five sections. These are in your Bibles probably. Psalm 1 to 41 is book 1. Each book begins with a new author and it ends with a specific kind of praise, a shout to God in praise. Book 1 and book 2, which leads us to Psalm 72, these are about David really, they're from David. A lot of them are before David was actually made king. And then you get to this next section, book 3, Psalm 73 to 89, and these are some dark psalms. So you can remember that. Dark Psalms. Where do I go to sort of reflect my darkness back to me and talk to God about it? Book 3, Psalm 73 to 89. Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106. These Psalms seems to emphasize, these Psalms seem to emphasize that God is the king. He reigns this earth, this world. And then book 5. Psalms 107 to the end, a lot of these psalms are during or after that exile, and, and they end, there are so many at the end there that are just the most exultant praise psalms that we have in our Bibles. Now, it'd be easy to overgeneralize these five books and to think, oh, that's all that's in that section, dark stuff. No, there's some happy stuff in book three. But these are general observations. There's an overall emphasis and development about God's kingship. You see, it's almost like this. 
The Psalms develop this theme of kingship, of reigning like this. They remind God's people of God's reign. They praise him for his reign. They wrestle with the implications of his reign in this world. And they promise an increased display of response to God for his reign. Or you could put it like this, the Psalms move from David needs to be king and he isn't king yet. To then David's on his throne and he's ruling. And so prayer now turns to a godly heritage for David's offspring and God's blessings being poured out on the generations to come. But then even in the midst of those days of highest fulfillment, David had a a great kingship and Solomon is his son and he's on the throne and the temple's been built. Even in those days of the greatest fulfillment, you still have psalms that are dark, that show sin and judgment and struggle and doubt. And then there are those psalms that talk about the perfect king, God himself. And all of this subtly but persistently points to the one who is to come. Great David, his greater son, Jesus. He reigns. The last question, how should we use the Psalms today? How should we use them? Let me recommend several ways in which we use the Psalms today. We read through them methodically and repeatedly. Read through them. Five psalms a day will get you through the book in a month. I've heard before that Billy Graham did this for many, many years, many decades probably. Or just use that ribbon bookmark that you have in most of your Bibles. And whether you read one psalm or ten psalms or something in between, when you stop there, put your little ribbon in, and then the next time you're in it, Hopefully the next day you pick up where you left off. Some Christians read Proverbs and Psalms together, one of each per day. Proverbs are especially easy because there are 31 of them and you can go by the day of the month. Or you can read consecutively through the Psalms no matter what else you are doing. So, you know, have a Bible plan. Read through the New Testament straight through. But maybe a Psalm a day because it's always something we need. I know I cannot go a year and be properly sustained in my Christian life without spending significant time in the Psalms. That goes back to what we said earlier. They're unique. So read methodically. Also, go hunting for help. Boy, 9-11 is a good test case, isn't it? Something like that happens. When a tsunami happens, when a devastating earthquake happens, Where do you turn? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be moved into the sea, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Or Psalm 119, I love this line. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? The psalmist knows there's comfort to be had in his word. 
and he hasn't found it yet, and his eyes are burning. They're failing. And he hasn't found his comfort yet, but he is not giving up because he knows it's there. Go hunting for help. In other words, get in the Psalms when you have a problem and read until you get help. Also come to develop favorites, old friends, dependable helps that you can go to. Turn to Psalm 93 to 100 to see the ferocious majesty. That's right, I said ferocious majesty of our God. Turn to Psalm 145 for some of the greatest encouragement about his praise and what's due him. Turn to Psalm 42 when you're downcast, when you're sad, and it doesn't make any sense. You know you're not living according to his promises with that attitude, turn to Psalm 42. Memorize specific psalms. Specific psalms that can be of help to you right then. I can't tell you how many times in tears I've been alone and I've said, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you and thus will I bless you while I live. Psalm 63 is dear to me. Get your kids to memorize the Psalms. Oh, how sweet it is to hear kids memorize and say Psalm 1. Will, our youngest when it got to that line about something in his season, what was the line? He brings forth his fruit in his season. Will would always say, ninis. Bring forth his fruit in its ninis. He didn't know what a season was or what a ninis was. I, I didn't know what a ninis was either. But, but it's so precious to hear that, not just in them, but coming out of them and hopefully growing in them as they get older. Related to that is make the Psalms the fuel for dozens of necessary fires that should be in the Christian life, right? So you want to stoke the fire for missions? Read Psalm 96. Read Psalm 67. You want to stoke the fire for reading scripture? You know you're supposed to read, but you don't feel like it. What do you do? You read Psalm 119, which keeps telling you why you need it and how you have to have it. You don't feel like going to church. You don't feel like meeting with God's people. Read those psalms of ascent about the wonder of going into corporate worship with his people. Sing the psalms. We've done that this morning. We'll keep doing it. Lord willing, we'll do it more. Newsflash, Drew and the musicians around here are right now in the recording studio uh, working on a CD of psalm songs. So there are songs, psalm songs you don't know about yet that we're about to dump on you. And as we're dumping on you, we're also going to be providing a wonderful CD to go along with it. Sing the psalms. Pray the psalms. Pray them as your own, especially when you don't know what to say. Use them as a springboard for your own prayers. Let them shape your prayers, but use the psalms. 